welcome to the Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing podcast that brings together some of the world's most innovative thinkers to weigh in on matters concerning the future of ourselves and our planet. And to discuss that future, not as something to be predicted, but to be created. In each episode, your hosts, Irvin Laszlo and Frederick Tsao, and moderator Nora Cesar, will converse with guests from numerous disciplines to help us navigate a new worldview which derives its wisdom from a synthesis of ancient and modern, East and West, science and spirituality. From these seemingly divergent perspectives, we will demonstrate how we can create a new narrative and usher in the dawn of a better era. So, welcome everyone. Today's episode will be focusing on the Baha'i spiritual paradigm. Our guest is the wonderful Dr. Elena Mustakova. Please allow me to introduce her. Dr. Elena Mustakova is an educator, social scientist, a former professor in adult developmental psychology and psychotherapist. Her work on the lifespan development of critical moral consciousness in individual lives and in education and society won the 1998 Outstanding Dissertation Award of the Association for Moral Education. For the past 30 years, she has focused on the systemic transformation of individual and collective consciousness across cultural contexts. She is the recipient of the Carter Campus Community Partnership Award 2003 and for her founding of the Latino Initiative in the state of Georgia. Dr. Mustakova is senior editor and chief contributor of a 2014 Springer International Psychology Volume on Toward a Socially Responsible Psychology for a Global Era. Her latest book, The Global Unitive Healing, which won the 2002 Nautilus Silver Book Award in the category of Rising to the Moment, introduces a practical healing methodology for lives and nations in an ailing world. Her work is inspired by Baha'i ontological understanding of reality as a spiritual phenomenon of the evolution of consciousness. Dr. Mustakova's perspective on the contribution of the Baha'i spiritual paradigm to the consciousness leap facing humanities in today's main topic. Thank you. Welcome, Elena. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be your guest today. And please allow me to introduce our hosts, Irvin Laszlo and Frederick Zhao. Irvin Laszlo is a two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, world-renowned philosopher and system scientist, author of over 106 books, founder of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research and the Club of Budapest. Recipient of multiple honors and awards like the Goy Peace Prize, the Assisi Mandir of Peace Prize, and the Luxembourg Peace Prize. And please welcome Frederick Zhao, business leader, futurist, practitioner of Eastern wisdom and Western science, author, chairman of the Family Business Network's Council of Wisdom 
and founder of the prestigious Octave Institute, fusing ancient wisdom and quantum science as a platform for people to achieve a purposeful life, mindfully lived at new levels of consciousness and freedom. Welcome everyone. To manage the session today, first I would like to invite Fred to set the stage for today's very special episode. Fred? Yeah, thank you, Nora. Um, one of the key things that we, uh, in the new era that we're arriving, is a new humanity. Now, we all know that everything we do, if we really analyze, is a process of I to we as we produce or do something. And then over this different uh, organization, be it family or business or religious institute, who actually then becomes nations, becomes United Nations, becomes humanity. And now we have a challenge of globalization against a sustainable humanity, which is a unique opportunity for human to really uh, look at how we can solve the problem of unity. Because without collaboration, we cannot solve this problem, which means our destiny is framed. Now, religious has been good in uniting different pockets, but on the other hand, it creates uh, animosity with other pockets. And this is a process that has been going on for over 2,000 years. But today, with a new challenge, we need a common uh, worldview, a common language, a common understanding and common shared experience so we can deal with a common challenge, a common future. So uh, it is uh, both Octave Institute and uh, the Laszlo Institute to really look at how this new paradigm of science as a possibility uh, that we can come with some commonality, which is not religious base. And uh, quantum science kind of crosses between material world and the spiritual world or the immaterial world. Uh, and so it is a very important that we actually get this dialogue going uh, so that we can go beyond the belief uh, system-based um, faith into direct spiritual experience and sharing that experience. So indeed, we will move into another era of high spirituality, common understanding, common challenge of humanity, uh, and uh, the uh, challenge of bringing back morality and, uh, and ethics into a market economy, which otherwise continue to destroy our environment and social fabric. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fred. So today's episode is the Baha'i Spiritual Paradigm. I would like to invite Elena to share a bit more about why the Baha'i spiritual perspective is important to her, to her journey of living it and practicing it. And please share a little bit more with our audience about this. Yes, thing. what I would like to do precisely with Elena, if I may come in. Yes, this please. I look forward to, but let me preface this with something that would interest Elena. Maybe she has known about it, maybe not. It's a personal, personal episode. Uh, in the 1970s, late 1970s, early 1980s, I was at the United Nations, first as a special fellow of the Institute for Training and Research, UNITAR, and then as director of research. In that capacity, I was giving occasional talks at the Doug Hammarskjöld Auditorium uh, in, in the big uh, UN building. 
and these were open to the UN community. Uh, after one of my talks, I had a group of young people, uh, middle-aged young people came to me and said, I didn't know that you were a Baha'i. I said, and what? I wasn't sure I heard it right. I said, yes, but you're not. I said, no, I'm not. I heard something really about it. I knew there is a Baha'i community, but I had no direct contact. And he said, I said, why do you say that? <clears throat> they said, it's because you sound like the teachings of Baha'u'llah. <laughs> well, that is formidable. What is that? It's the oneness and the, 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 the higher level of, of, of building consciousness that's being built together, always in unity and always in an evolutionary perspective. And I said, no, I get that from the system sciences. Then I developed the contact. I followed up the invitation, and our next talk was about this, about these ideas, and with a dialogue with the Baha'i members of the Baha'i community. I enjoyed it a great deal. I then became affiliated with the Baha'i Center in Haifa. Mm -hmm. I was very closely related. I was under the under the guidance, so to speak, of the widow of Abdul Baha. Mm -hmm. was, grandson of, of, of uh, Baha'u'llah, who was of Canadian origin, but lived in Haifa at the time, married to the great grandson, great grandson of Baha'u'llah. And she was a lovely person. She invited me to, the, to the, go come to the Baha'i Center in Haifa. I spent a week over there exploring some of the writings that were not generally published and see some of them. And I must say, I got a lot of inspiration from that my own work. I studied this. I was sitting there. But I could not take it out of the center. I think some of the original manuscript is a formidable experience and illumination and enlightenment, actually. I want to say that I was looking forward to talking with Elena and exploring this fantastic Baha'i face, which is today is more needed than ever before on this planet. So I look forward to hearing from Elena. I'm sorry for this little interlude, but I just wanted to tell you, I have this personal guide, this personal connection with the Baha'i face, which is very, very dear to me. No, we love personal interludes. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yes, we love it. So please, please, please. That's that's what we are all about. Elena, please. Sorry. Well, Irvin, first of all, thank you for this wonderful account. I think I had heard snippets of uh, of the fact that you had some contact with the community, but I did not know that you spend a week at the at the center in Haifa reading and immersing yourself. So this is quite fascinating, and it actually um, opens the door for me to share what I wanted to share today. Uh, it is often said that beliefs divide us but values unite us. And so to me, what is essential that I want to focus on today is probably the very same system of values and uh, systemic understanding that you discovered that you found so inspirational. I discovered it at the age of 33. I had uh, grown up in communism and uh, in the former Eastern Europe, where basically it was all about slogans that had no uh, no foundation in serious science and were also in radical emotional and real disconnect from the praxis on the ground. 
And so uh, at the age of 30, I went to uh, do my doctorate in the US and I was very agnostic. And then I encountered this understanding, this spiritual paradigmatic understanding that you spoke about, Irvin. And uh, it was just uh, quite surprising to me. This was a time that I was also studying um, adult development and uh, I was loving my doctoral research in adult development, but kept asking the question, there's something fundamentally missing here. We have a lot of good systemic understanding of the transformation of individual consciousness, the structural uh, evolution of individual consciousness, but where is the systemic social perspective? Consciousness is a social, a socially constructed phenomenon as well, and, and the social context cannot be absent from any developmental model. And that's when I actually encountered um, these spiritual gatherings that were discussing uh, the principles of the Baha'i spiritual paradigm. And um, I was truly very, very surprised because I found, and that was in 1992, such a level of integral systemic perspective that reconciles dichotomies, at least in my understanding of it, and holds paradoxes gently, elevates the vision, but really also sets modern consciousness free in order to point it on a very practical path forward on this planet. And so I was wondering, why is this not in any way studied academically? As a model, just as a source of knowledge, as a source of wisdom, such as many other sources of wisdom eventually are studied academically. We've got now Hindu psychology and philosophy. We have Buddhist psychology and philosophy, Taoist and, and many others. But this particular understanding is still not academically studied, and that truly puzzled me. Maybe it's maybe it's too soon. I do not know. But what I've discovered in it that was uh, very profound for me is that it uh, spans across the universe in terms of understanding, and at the same time, um, it really captures the reality of the soul, speaks to the reality of the soul and the universe at the same time. It describes what physicists are now talking about as a universe that displays local phenomena, but is built upon non-local reality. These are understandings that I found in the writings, and it was striking to me in the Baha'i writings, that they are highly scientific and in fact they were as you well know released in the mid 19th century in the mid 19th century some very important scientific discoveries were predicted such as atomic energy the transmutation of elements space travel and a number of others so clearly this understanding was emerging through some kind of connection to the source and it was uh, important to to grasp. Um, and so one way that I've come to think about it that really helps me is um, what Julian Carlian in his recent book describes. The, the, the title of his book is uh, One Earth, Three Worlds. And I feel that uh, actually... Baha'i spiritual understanding began to speak about these three worlds 
uh, as I said, in the mid-19th century, as um, David Lorimer in his recent review of this book was summarizing uh, um, these three worlds, it is the world of oneness, which is, of course, the world of mystical reality. It is the world of two-ness, which is the empirical material realm that is addressed by science. And then there is the intermediary world. The intermediary world that is the hardest to decide. The world that summons, the world where transition and transformation happens. And that's what I started to discover in my journey that uh, these spiritual principles spoke in a very clear way both to the world of oneness and the direct mystical connection of the soul to its source uh, and to the whole. It also spoke to the incredible importance of scientific understanding and particularly scientific understanding that transcends material uh, materialistic reductionism and really seeks the intersection with spiritual understanding. There's even a spiritual principle uh, that was articulated, the complementarity of science and spirituality in the mid-19th century, which was very surprising to me. And, uh, and where I find this spiritual paradigm probably most unique is in the way that it focuses on the intermediary world. And it applies spiritual principles to those areas that are hardest to reconcile and where still I hear a lot of polarities. And I'll just give you some examples. Um, for example, the masculine and the feminine. After so many centuries of, uh, of patriarchal civilization, we now have this, uh, we now have this, uh, real coming forward of the power of the feminine and the need to recognize um, the way the feminine really integrates and uh, and offers a different path, a more healing path, a more equitable path forward because it is a loving relationship. It is a compassionate relationship, not a relationship of force and dominance. But then it seems that we start uh, counterposing these different forces. And one thing that I, I really found quite powerful and healing coming out of a very patriarchal society and a very patriarchal social system of uh, communist totalitarianism was to both see in the Baha'i uh, spiritual perspective the powerful recognition of the leading role of the feminine in this age, and at the same time, placing it in complementarity with the masculine and not uh, in, in some kind of um, real tension. So, for example, um, some of the writings speak about the mental alertness, intuition, and the spiritual qualities of love and service that are so characteristic of the feminine and of the fact that uh, uh, feminine consciousness is so characterized by an alert and wakeful heart. 
and uh, that these are qualities that will lead the way in the new age, but in collaboration. And related to this dichotomy, which we seem to still be struggling with in various talks that I listen to, is also the dichotomy that I hear between religion and spirituality. And uh, certainly here I'm speaking today from the point of view of spiritual paradigm, not religion, because I do think that faith is a very personal experience and it is not something um, that can be easily conveyed and perhaps it doesn't need to be. Um, that's a part of a personal journey, but it's the spiritual understanding that after all can can really uh, open us and, and uh, ready us for greater experiences of connection. But uh, I do hear a lot of commentary that because of the destructive role that uh, religious structures have placed in, in creating enmity among populations, religion per se is, uh, is a problematic phenomenon. And in the Baha'i spiritual understanding, it is framed a bit differently. Religion is understood as a structure that channels spiritual insight into social structures, but it is only as useful and really a channel for, for spiritual insights to the extent to which it unites across boundaries. And so there is a very clear recognition that historically religion has not evolved to where it unites. But there's also um, a suggestion that perhaps we are entering an age of spiritual maturity where we may well be able to recognize the oneness across different religious and spiritual traditions and to actually work with that oneness in diversity without a sense of competition or trying to convert each other or convince each other, but really focusing on what is the common ground and recognizing that structure is also necessary. And that's another dichotomy, hierarchy versus structure. I was also listening to a recent talk, which was uh, also saying there's been so much hierarchy and religion has been the source of so much hierarchy that we should really do away with that. Um, certainly, Baha'i spiritual and practical understanding eliminates all hierarchies, but it does not eliminate structures. And it does recognize that structuring social life, structuring community life, structuring the psyche are very essential processes. It is in the tension with structures that we evolve. And so, uh, again, this is to me Yet another example in which uh, dichotomies are resolved somehow by this spiritual paradigm, at least in a way that's that's meaningful for me. So um, I can uh, feel much more comfortable in the fullness of the human spiritual heritage from the goddess traditions to indigenous traditions to the full range of uh, religious historical traditions and see in all of them an expression of the one with many faces, but really pointing to a same reality. But then there was also something very unique that I saw in these contemporary spiritual principles. On the one hand, um, 
as I mentioned, they really point to a universal reality. Even the very name Baha'i is not actually a name. The root Baha, Abha, as I'm sure you may know, actually means in Farsi and Arabic, light. So this simply means followers of the light. And so there's many more followers of the light than people who call themselves Baha'i or really anything. Um, oftentimes the people who call themselves names are, are, are more limited. Um, and, and that's probably why you had the experience of people coming to you and saying, you sound like a follower of the light. You sound like you're talking, Irvin, about the evolution of our relationship to the light, to consciousness, uh, because that's really what it was. The name Baha'u'llah also is not a personal name. In fact, I keep forgetting the personal name that stands behind. Baha'u'llah is really the light of the source, the light of God, the glory of the unknowable. That's what it means. It's not a personal name. So again, um, on the one hand, it's a very um, integral contemporary understanding of spiritual principles that cut across wisdom traditions. On the other hand, I found something quite unique in it, and it is particularly the profound and well-articulated understanding of how to work in the modern world with the challenges of the modern world within our lives, with the complex dialectic between unity and justice as the two central organizing principles of a planetary age. And that's what really struck my imagination as a developmental psychologist and also as a social psychologist and a clinician. That those were the questions for me. How do you work with this very complex dialectic of unity and justice in a planetary age of so much conflict? And so what I found in this uh, spiritual paradigm is a practical evolutionary model of governance that literally turns on its head. It, uh, it radically rethinks all of our contemporary concepts such as uh, politics, economics, uh, social governance, etc. Very, very interesting model that I hope someday soon will be studied critically studied as um, as as a way to to um, consider um, as a possibility to consider. So what does this uh, model of governance suggest? Um, really, it is what people are now talking about in terms of the need for renewal of the con social contract in the context of the fragility of our socioeconomic political structure. So it suggests that governance in a planetary age needs to be completely um, bottom up, completely democratic through the election of local, national and international councils of governance, which are elected every year or every few years at the highest level. And these elections, which is very interesting, are a profound spiritual process. They are anonymous. There is no campaigning, they are silent, and there is only one criterion for the election, and that is that the people who are elected should be truly manifesting the capacities to serve. They are servants. 
They are not leaders. They are servants. It's really servant leadership, another more contemporary concept, and that they should uh, manifest a high standard of ethics and character. And in that system of, of governance, which is fundamentally spiritual, there are quite a few checks and balances to ensure that this is a governance as service, not as the exercise of power. In the same way, collective security is also radically rethought. Um, so this was the middle of the 19th century when uh, this idea of the World Federation, which is quite common now, uh, was raised as the future of the planetary civilization, the World Federation, which preserves the radical diversity of all the world nations and states, but also unites them um, in through a legal and governance system which is grounded in laws that are essentially spiritual and that both protect diversity and at the same time uphold a format or a force, a collective force that is able to defend the fullness of this diversity and the application of spiritual laws from the rise of tyranny, of uh, the kind of uh, authoritarian um, rise in uh, individuals and groups that we now see. That was something that was actually um, conceived that it would be likely to be happening again and again in the transitional period of the evolution of collective civilization, and there should be protection against it. And so that's part of the governance structure. And then, and that's probably the last thing I'd like to mention here is this universal spiritual language, which I found in, in this spiritual paradigm, um, which really translates into every wisdom tradition of the past. It lifts the human vision towards the source of consciousness and life, and it embraces every particular expression of such a vision, historical, ethnic, indigenous, but it also transcends it. One of my favorite uh, quotes that really sums that up and also sums up the compassionate guidance that this spiritual language often offers to the modern soul, which is faced with so many multiplicities and so many difficult choices, um, is the following two-liner that I'd like to share with you. It goes like this. Dost thou reckon thyself only a puny form when within thee the whole universe is folded. So this spiritual language in a way really guides and elevates the deepest human potentialities allows us to negotiate our personalities and our individual journeys and our community journeys, both in a grounded way, but also holding a larger vision at the same time and transcending particularities. And it steers communities beyond narrow loyalties because it only recognizes one fundamental loyalty, and that is to the one human race and the one planet. And uh, 
it speaks to all three worlds, the mystical, the scientific, and the it's the transitional. Um, it really radically redefines concepts such as love, justice, unity, politics. Um, as I said already, left or right politics, new age spirituality versus conventional religion, national sovereignty versus global stewardship, all these uh, dichotomies, authority versus structure uh, versus force. And it introduces a due process that is very different than what's familiar in the world right now. And that is a profoundly consultative process. Now I will pause by completing this part of my sharing. And I would like to just say that this spiritual paradigm, just like every spiritual paradigm that has emerged historically, uh, is so profound that its actualization in practice is a steep learning curve of the real evolutionary phenomenon. Um, people don't have it down. Nobody has it down. This is, uh, this is work in progress, but it's work in progress that uh, is, is really quite a, a multicultural laboratory. There's over a um, 130 countries in which this laboratory is taking place at this time. It's a lot of learning. And uh, some of it is quite perplexing. But I'll stop here. It's dear to my heart because um, it seems practical enough for me. As somebody who came out of communism, I want to see how things are going to be actually different. I love theory. I love concepts. I love integral models. But at the end of the day, I'd like to see in actual practice, how is change happening on the ground? So, um, and to me, that that's where spirituality really gets tested. And that's why the concept of service is so, so profound. But thank you. I think I'll stop here. Thank you, Elena. Fred, I can see that you would like to add something here. I don't even know how to respond. Probably take me an hour to respond to so many points. But what gone through my mind is framing my personal experience uh, and try to put in the quantum paradigm explanation um, into what I hear. There's just so many facets and so complete uh, a. Uh, a presentation, Leonard, is just, I don't know where to begin. Let's, let's talk about transition to three realm. As we know that actually everything is always in transition because of evolution, always in transition. And, um, and that between the material world and the spiritual world and the spiritual world, which is holistic, it's causing the evolutionary thing to move. Well, that's what the quantum science is also saying. And these are all information. The material world is nothing but an expression of the consciousness dancing with energy. And light, when it takes with consciousness, then particles appear. So consciousness dance with light. So therefore, every religion is about light. And science also found that we are made from photons. So this, this is true. 
So in deep spirituality, which is going to stillness of going inside us to find God, we will find light, which is what we're made of. And so the transition is uh, what we call the evolutionary force. The Chinese call it the Tao, Holy Spirit, many names. But that transition is always constant because in the material world, everything is changing. But there's only constant in that is in the spiritual world, which is the foundation for the material world. Because it's a holographic reality, it's a projection, it's just fractal geometry at work from a scientific perspective. And so we are light, we're always in transition. The Buddhist called bottles, the book of death, the transition, the sixth transition, it's always a different face. Now, our culture... It's actually our life value and our living habits. And so therefore we need to know what is life. And increasingly more and more we realize life is everything and we're part of life. If the universe sneezes, which is a plasmic activity, Earth will have a cold. So if Earth squeezes, uh, you can happen what to us. And so more and more in the systemic thinking, which is a material thinking logic of the left brain in trying to mimic what holism is into our understanding. And so therefore, we see that, hey, we don't exist without the earth. And so therefore, if we serve the earth, we're serving ourselves. If we serve society, we're serving ourselves. If they don't exist, there's no me. The realization that freedom is holism and freedom needs responsibility of life. When we reach there, then democracy can begin from the bottoms up. True democracy. But before that, beautification happens. In other words, a small percentage of people changing, which is evolution, will allow the tip over 98%. So therefore, just like religion, Real spiritual people are very, very small. They can share experience, they can connect. And therefore, religious dogma dominates the majority. However, nonetheless, that few percent can change the world now into a new form. And so I remain hopeful because I observe the movement has already begun for the new era. And awakening is happening. So in responding, a number of level of what Elena says, I think uh, that the faith offer interesting uh, perspective. For example, what is transition? We, how do we, through material activity of service, transmute the transition into our spiritual advancement and awakening? So every religion talk about practices and values and stuff like that. Go beyond that you understand the holism, the freedom, uh, it's always driving, and there's some inert conscience uh, that's driving us. And the, there's always everybody asking the existential questions of life. Whether I came from, what am I here, irrespective of where you come from. As long as we do that guiding fundamental beacon of existential question and our conscience lighting it back to the light, we have shared experience. And that goes a new faith that go beyond what I hear what Elena say, the principles. But we must be only for one who's awakened one. Democracy cannot happen 
when people are asleep driving the car. And so first we have to awaken and do the work of awakening. And that's very important. And shared faith based on direct spiritual experience. Because those who really experience it, it's the same human nature, same reality, same holism. That transition of doing service for the world is a process of reuniting our basic one. And how do we know love? Because we are love, so we have emerged in love. Until we express love, then we realize we are love. And our dividend of joy will fuel us into our life and continue the journey of spirituality and service. Before that, before you can feel it, you don't know who you are. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Irwin, what would you like to add? Well, we have an interesting distribution of roles here. Different from what one would expect, but it's a very good distribution. Namely, we have here two commentators of, of the brilliant expose of Elena by Fred and myself. Now, Fred is a businessman and I'm a philosopher. Fred is providing a, a deep philosophy, a philosophy of, of religion. I'm on the practical note. I started on the practical note and I will continue on the practical note. <clears throat> Just in these few lines, a few words of comment. <clears throat> what Elena has been talking about is what I consider, just as fast as holistic understanding, I would say the systemic understanding, the one that I have been trying to develop all these times, all these years. In fact, if you would look up the book that I published in 1977, uh, The Strategy for the Future, The Systems Approach to World Order, there is the Baha'i principles are present there, uh, highly, highly clearly and fully, not fully, but I mean, significantly illustrated. That has been my spiritual upbringing in a way. And it has come about because I've had this personal contact with people who are religious leaders, but not, not leaders of religion. They are spiritual people. This brings me to remark on one thing, remarkable thing. The great spiritual masters had their disciples who took over their spirit and who could spread, spread their spirit. The followers that came then entered into the debate, the debacle of competing with other spiritual traditions, and they made the initial insight into dogma. Dogma to unite them under a common framework, which is not just only a philosophical spiritual framework, but an organizational framework. You belong to us, and you, 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 you make sure that you don't get infected by the heathens by the wrong thinkers, by these uh, agnostics and the atheists. The, the great religious leaders transcended this. They were the great prophets. They felt all that Elena was talking about. They felt what, what Fred is talking about, and they lived that. Now, their tradition is being filtered by masses of people who are entering the fray of you belong to me, my religion, or to your religion, or to another religion, and making this initial uplifting spirit into a dogma, a doctrine. 
Now we have this unique chance here. We have a great prophet, a religious prophet, who lived this. We can be sure from his writings that he lived this, lived this, this deep sense of oneness, the compassion, and he lived in the 19th century. That's a unique chance because that is that a direct link, almost a living link of a few generations, not going back to biblical times. And here we have a chance to study that because it, it is still around. It is still a living spirit among people who are handing it down without being infected by the dogma of competition. So I'm talking about this Baha'i face, which is so remarkable that what is being exposed by it, what Elena exposes by it as a, as a, as a spokesperson of this face, is a deepest contemporary understanding, the most integral, complete contemporary understanding of who we are and what the world is. Quantum science as such didn't, ex didn't exist in the 19th century, yet it is now, now we recognize that what this quantum science tells us is really uh, it reflects the latest scientific understanding. Science and religion need not go separate ways. The intermediary is role is an important one, but it is becoming superseded in a way by the fact that science is, at least at its leading edge, it's evolving into the spiritual dimension. It's very little difference between the key quantum principles, as Fred always quotes them, and in the leading edge spiritual understanding of reality, the lived understanding. They are both science and spirituality, and spiritual and spirituality is becoming science. So just to conclude, yes, we have a unique chance in the Baha'i community, with the Baha'i community, to study a deep, insightful understanding, living, experiencing the world, and study it with people who themselves share this and are close to its originator. So already for this reason, it's extremely valuable to study this, this tradition. It's already a living tradition. It's being reconfirmed day after day. It's a prophetic view Amazing how in the 19th, mid 19th century, these ideas could have been brought forth by somebody who was actually imprisoned by secluded at the time, had no contact with, with the world around him, except a very limited one, and yet came up with all these ideas in a, in a prison cell. Amazing. But it's true that the greatest insights come not by outside source, but by inside source by are inside us, the recognition of who we are, evolutionary beings who live in a community, but each harbor the universe in us, ourselves, as Elena said. This is the holographic understanding, as Fred also mentioned. Indeed, the totality of all the information that makes the universe is in every particle, is in every being. And this understanding is, is this totality is, does not made up of matter, principle of pieces, bits and pieces of matter. It's made up of insight and information. The universe is an informed energy totality. 
information is the key principle acting on a moving principle, which is energy in a deeper original sense, not as vectorial physical energy, but as something that moves things, that makes a difference, that structures. And evolution is the typical of, of this world. And let me just end this by saying, extremely valuable <clears throat> to begin and then to, then to continue a dialogue with leading Baha'i individuals who are, who are modest, who feel oneness with the world around them, and who are the contemporary progenitors of a tradition that is the most recent prophetic tradition in the human species, in the inhuman culture. A great opportunity. I'm glad that Fred initiated this actually this dialogue and part of this, part of our contact with the world's religion, exploring them. I'm glad that we had this opportunity to hear Elena, who was thinking, who was speaking a language and concepts that appeared, may have appeared to original, to originated in a religion, but but actually deepest science. That just as Fred, when speaking, is also speaking uh, a business person, but speaking philosophy, because his scientific understanding is spiritual, just like the spiritual understanding today of the Baha'i faith is scientific. So thank you again for organizing this, for allowing me to allow me to be a part of it. And I hope that we can continue this dialogue in many, many fruitful ways, applying it to the world and we're badly in need of these principles of service. Where are the politicians today who want to serve? What do we hear these days? Is a service, a struggle for leadership across all bonds and barriers. So very much needed today. And, and, and let's pursue it today. Thanks again and all the best for the contributions. Thank you, Elena, and thank you, Fred. And thank you, Nora. Thank you, Irvin. Uh, I actually have one more question that I would like to ask Elena before we conclude on today's session. So we talked about language and my question is that what is the role of the universal spiritual language in elevating human consciousness in these very divisive times? Elena, what do you think? Well, we're at the end of a very profound conversation that probably needs to continue because it's hard to address this big question concisely. But uh, I actually think that the best way to answer your question is to share a short, very short uh, excerpt, which is uh, one of the revealed so-called hidden words by Baha'u'llah. And it is the one hidden word that particularly speaks to me and spoke to me when I was uh, early on discovering this spiritual uh, um, horizon, profound horizon, where science and spirituality really become one another, as Irving so beautifully said it. When I was early in discovering this uh, integral horizon, this particular word hidden word really inspired me because it spoke to a very contemporary understanding of spirituality, one that we need more than ever now. And it is the second hidden word, and it is about justice. So if you will allow me, I'd like to share it. 
O son of spirit, the best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. Turn not away therefrom if thou desirest me, and neglect it not that I may confide in thee. By its aid thou shalt see with thine own eyes and not through the eyes of others, and shall know of thine own knowledge and not through the knowledge of thy neighbor. Ponder this in thy heart, how it behooveth thee to be. Verily justice is my gift to thee and the sign of my loving kindness. Set it then before thine eyes. So when I first read this, I just thought, what a call to the core of, of, of human nature, the core of human nature where Fred uh, beautifully saw, said is light. It's the light of truth. It's the light of justice. It's the light of love. And it is very interesting that this language is the same language which frames these governing councils that I spoke about. So when people are invited to vote silently and without campaigning to elect governing councils each year, they have to think in the spirit of justice. They have to think about um, justice for this age is different than for previous ages. It's a very complex age. So we have to really, the, the, the spiritual language is both universal, but it really also asks us to rethink it. What is justice in this age? And who are people who have the comprehensiveness of vision and understanding and a service orientation that can serve justice in a global age? How can each local council eventually become what Baha'u'llah described it will become one day, house of justice? Wow, a local governing council of nine elected men and women eventually becoming a house of justice and, and carrying out its affairs in that spirit. That's a language that takes you out of the mundane, out of competing um, issues and commitments and really sets your eye on the horizon in terms of governance, human affairs. So this is just the beginning of an answer. I, I don't know that we have time to delve further, but I hope that's that's at least an open door. Thank you, Elena. Um, I would like to ask Fred for your concluding words about the Baha'i spiritual paradigm. Well, I think I'll respond to what Elena talked about it. And I think... Uh, framing a slightly different about uh, contextualization. So justice is how big a context you have. So you might have context between two persons, but in the bigger picture, it's not the right context. But if you have in the context of life, which is everything, material, the whole universe, then ethics and justice and morality will start framing in the right perspective. So first, in this global era, you must have the right context to understand justice and perspective. And you need the expansion of that continuously into just one value. 
How do you serve life? What did you do and add value to life? It's really easy. How do you serve and add value to all life, including yourself? So when your context is big enough externally, you can see how you can serve life itself, which is everything. So that will put justice in the right direction. Another expand our inner wisdom, which everybody, you know, you have to go to the light and only in stillness and inner journey, you can meet God, you can find light and you can find out who you are, which is true, good and beautiful. And that is love. That internal expansion and that external expansion of contacts of both the inner wisdom and outer wisdom combined with good education on how we can execute to ground our action. That is where I think humanity should go into a new management school of life that our education system can evolve to. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Barwin? I have said a great deal already for too much for this particular occasion. Let me just say, fiat lux. Let there be light. We badly need that. In this transition period, the contrast between light and darkness is very, very strong. Light is what we need, not the power companies, the inner light and the, and the interpersonal light that also Elena was talking about. We are looks. Let us make light. Thank you, Erwin. Elena. Would it be possible to end this podcast with a blessing or a prayer from you? Something that the audience would be able to receive when they are listening to this episode and just sort of take it with them? I'd be very glad to share a prayer. This is the first prayer which actually opened my heart. As I started saying, at age 30, I was a complete agnostic and uh Prayer was very far from me, <laughs> but this particular prayer really did something. And for the next 30 plus years, 33 years now, it has accompanied me because it speaks in my mind to the core of the challenge for us to attain this global spiritual collective maturation an evolution of consciousness, which Baha'u'llah said very clearly, is the, the growth horizon, the evolutionary horizon, that we will grow into spiritual maturity and will learn how to establish oneness. Um, the, the foundational condition for that is purity of heart. And uh, I think Fred spoke about that very clearly, that without purity of heart, we cannot exercise global justice and stewardship, we cannot come into oneness. And so this is a prayer for purity of heart that I'd like to share. Create in me a pure heart, O oh my God, and renew a tranquil conscience in me, O oh my hope. Through the spirit of power, confirm thou me in thy cause, O oh my best beloved, and by the light of thy glory, reveal unto me thy path, O thou the goal of my desire. Through the power of thy transcendent might, lift me up unto the heaven of thy holiness, O source of my being. And by the breezes of thine eternity, gladden me, O thou who art my God. 
let thine everlasting melodies breathe tranquility on me, O my companion, and let the riches of thine ancient countenance deliver me from all except thee, O my master, and let the tidings of the revelation of thine incorruptible essence bring me joy, O thou who art the most manifest of the manifest and the most hidden of the hidden. That was beautiful. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you. A lot. It's amazing. Thank you. Beautiful. I'm profoundly grateful for your work that opens these spaces and is inviting humanity into these spaces and is reaching far and wide. It is really what is needed. Nothing more important right now than spiritual education. So this is the work. And thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming, Elena. You are just incredible wisdom that you shared with us and the audience. Thank you so much. Any concluding words from Irwin and Fred? We have had it already. I have had it actually. I'm very grateful, enjoyable conversation. Thank you indeed. What a compelling note to conclude on. Well, and we are closing this session. I am Nora Cesar with our hosts, Erwin Laszlo and Frederick Tsao, thanking today's very special guest, Dr. Elena Mustakova, and our worldwide audience, as well as our wonderful production team, which I'm happy to be a part of, led by Kenichi Sugihara, Suki Itai, and those many others at Octave Institute and the Laszlo Institute. From whatever nation state or emotional state you might be in, this is the place to tune in. We invite you to join us for more episodes of Dawn of an Arrow Wellbeing Podcast, as well as to give this book to yourself or to a loved one. It is a true companion for these challenging times. The bravado of our ego has historically gotten the better of us. So remember, this time when building that new paradigm for humankind, let's include humankindness. Stay tuned and stay attuned. for listening. Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing is a co-production of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research, the Octave Institute, and Select Books Publishers. Our theme music is Chimera by Biba Dupont. For more information about Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing, please visit our website at www.thelasloinstitute.com. If you enjoy our program, please remember to subscribe to us on your podcast service. And if you are using Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating to help other listeners learn about our show. See you next time.